You are now listening to The Nosebleeds with your hosts, Kush Parikh and Corey Johnson. Be sure to check us out weekly on Tuesday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Follow us on social media to stay up to date with the podcast on Twitter at the underscore nosebleeds. That's K-N-O-W-S bleeds. Instagram at the nosebleeds and on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the nosebleeds. Yo, what up, everybody? Welcome back to the Nosebleeds Podcast. That's K-N-O-W-S. Bleeds is your boy. You already know it's your boy, Kush. And I'm here with my co-host, as always, Mr. Corey Johnson. Corey, how you doing, my man? It's good to be back on the Nosebleeds. Yes, sir. It's been a while. It's been a while. But we back, we back, we back, we are back. Yes, sir. Yeah, we got to take a little... Little hiatus, but we back and uh, let's get straight into it. Let's talk about NBA because it's coming down to the wire and the season is almost year. So uh, let's talk a little bit about some teams. And first, let's start off with the Lakers. We got Anthony Davis making his return Thursday night against the Mavericks. AD missed 30 games due to an Achilles injury. And in his timeout, the Lakers went 14 and 16. And when both him and LeBron were out, they went 6 and 10. But they are currently still fifth in the Western Conference, two and a half games behind fourth and two and a half games ahead of sixth. So as we all know, LeBron is still going to be injured, but they got AD. And uh, they had some new additions to the team and Andre Drummond, arguably one of the best rebounders in the NBA. So what, what are you looking forward to watching in the Lakers and how do you think they're going to finish out the season, Corey? Uh, I said that I didn't think that they were going to fall beyond the fifth seed. Uh, and so far, cr- kudos to the guys who have been available for them and kudos to the guys who have been on the floor for them and, and being able to maintain and not allow the ship to completely fall and to not allowing them to fall into the play-in tournament. So that's cool. That's credit to the coaching. That's credit to the players that have been um, playing well. And um, just the the mere fact that they're going to get, you know, a boost in confidence and getting a player of Anthony Davis's caliber is something that you would love to see if you're a Lakers fan, because I think more so Anthony Davis than LeBron, because I think with LeBron, we kind of expect, and we kind of know what he's capable of. And you kind of just are just hoping that you can get a favorable first round matchup. But with Anthony Davis, we know his history as far as injuries. And I think he needs to kind of, you know, to get back into the flow of things. It's going to take him a few games or so to get back to game speed and back to NBA uh, speed. But I think he needs, he, he needed to more so come back for the Lakers than I think LeBron James. And I think this is a good sign for the Lakers as they head into the latter stages of the season. And ultimately I feel like um, Anthony Davis, if he starts to play well, starts to get back into that um, defensive player, uh, most defensive uh, valuable player, and also gets into that maybe MVP caliber type player, then I think the Lakers have to be happy going into the playoffs. You think uh, they're still the favorites to win the West and maybe to win it all? I think that's that's to be determined. I think that I don't think necessarily maybe they're like the favorites. I think it all depends on what they look like. And I think it all depends on um, whether or not they're healthy and how healthy they are uh, going into the postseason. But I think 
Um, the favorites would probably be um, either Phoenix or Utah, but I think that the Lakers um, would probably be like the third choice for me and then probably the, the Clippers after that. But um, the Clippers have been balling too, so I can't even throw out, you know, so it's, it's kind of hard to tell because I don't want to say that the Lakers are, aren't, aren't still a competitive team, but um, favorite wise, I think that there may be a couple teams, maybe even the Clippers are probably above them right now. So you're finally buying into the jazz, huh? Finally. Well, yeah, I, I was kind of sleeping on them, uh, at the start of the season, but I think they, they definitely earned their respect. It's just whether or not that combination of Rudy Gobert and the rest of the crew is going to work in the playoffs versus regular season when you're playing a team for uh, seven in a seven game series and you got to beat them four times that is going to be to be determined on whether or not that duo can get it done and how far they can go and if i think they can get at least to the western conference finals that's probably a w but if they get to the finals then i think hey i think we absolutely cannot no, no longer sleep on uh the utah jazz but hey we'll see what happens i don't think that they make it to the finals but it depends on how healthy they are. Oh, yeah, I think what you said about the West being stacked, I mean, it, it's crazy with Utah, Phoenix, the Clippers, and the Lakers, all of uh, those teams. And, I mean, you, you, I think you hit the nail on the head, but I think also not – I don't think chemistry will be an issue, but definitely getting tires back on the track, you know what I'm saying? Because yeah. when you have multiple games out with – and you have LeBron, Anthony Davis, Andre Drummond, and Dennis Schroeder, like those are four big guys and that do require the ball. And uh, I think you're going to need a couple games with those four guys in the lineup together before the playoffs start and see kind of how they gel and mesh with one another – um because we know ad lebron and schroeder do but i mean you got a guy like drummond i mean it could change the dynamic of this team and definitely make them a lot scarier because the real achilles heel to this team we've talked about it numerous times was their interior defense and their pure low post big man that they had last year in dwight howard and javel mcgee that they clearly lost and didn't fill the void but now they did with andre drummond who can lighten the rebounding and the interior defensive duties for a guy like anthony davis who is made of glass so i mean it allows him to focus more on the offensive end but i mean i think i honestly i think this these injuries were kind of a blessing for them give them a little rest let them uh you know kind of clear their minds and stuff like that on in the season so I, i'm gonna say that they're still the favorites in the west and uh i think even if they don't finish as the top four seed and the, and the West doesn't go through them and they don't have home court advantage, I still think they're favorites to win the West. And we only have a very small sample size of the Brooklyn Nets with their big three of Harden, Kyrie, and Durant. So, I mean, I don't want to say I'm 100% in on them winning the championship, which I do I do believe that they have the chance, but I don't want to go all in on them. I still think mm -hmm. the Lakers have a chance. Um and obviously I'm gonna say my Clippers too because that's, that's more from a fan's perspective of course, but of course, of course. If, the, if the Lakers uh if their new guys can get it to click with the new faces in their lineup I, you got we got to watch out for the Lakers yeah I would also say uh to piggyback off of the point of this was maybe a blessing in disguise that AD and LeBron went down multiple years and multiple LeBron teams the biggest criticism I always have about a LeBron centered team is it's all on LeBron. It's LeBron or bust. If LeBron doesn't have it going, then you kind of look around and you're kind of like, okay, you hope that his number two, Kyrie, uh, D-Wade, 
Anthony Davis is playing well, but if they're not playing well, then you're kind of like up in arms about like who's going to be that third guy that steps up. Well, with those two being gone for a long, long period of time, it forced Kyle Kuzma, it forced Dennis Schroeder, it forced, you know, uh, Montrez Harold, it forced all these other guys to have to step up their level of play in the regular season. And they got opportunity to be in clutch situations down the stretch in games to be able to experience what it's going to be like in the postseason when things get tough, when things aren't going their way, when, you know, stuff gets real, then that way I think that the Lakers are going to be a little bit more battle tested than a lot of these other teams that have had their stars throughout the course of the regular season and have been able to play uh, and develop their chemistry already. I think the Lakers are already going to have a leg up because their reserves and their guys off the bench, even if it's going to, even though the bench is, you know, shortened, it's still going to provide Frank Vogel with a lot of different options to pick from and pick and choose from for who you go to in the clutch, because you seen what different guys are able to do and what they're able to handle. And you're not going to be able to uh, kind of be scratching your head of like, what do I do? Who do I go to here? You already know who you got and what the team is going to look like, what the dynamic is going to look like because you've been battle tested without your two stars in AD and LeBron. Yeah, definitely have that next man up mentality. Um, and a team that's going to need to have that mentality is the Brooklyn Nets, given all their injuries, and especially with the crazy news that shocked the NBA. Just five games in after shocking the NBA, LaMarcus Aldridge signed with the Nets, and now he shocked it again by basically uh, retiring due to an irregular heartbeat. And he said, he basically said, quote, for 15 years, I've put basketball first, and now it's time to put my health and family first, end quote. So, Aldridge has been a great player throughout his career, playing for the Trailblazers, the Spurs, and the Nets. What are your thoughts on his retirement? Uh, it was definitely surprising because the guy literally just signed for Brooklyn, and everybody was talking about like what uh, he would bring as far as a veteran presence to that Brooklyn Nets team. And all of a sudden, it's like, boom, done. He's out of here. And I'm just like, oh, wow, that, that was fast. But um, I think uh, one of the other things that is just kind of disappointing is the fact that he wasn't able to finish out his career on his own terms and, you know, retire on his own terms and wasn't able to really ever be put in a position where he was able to compete for a championship, unfortunately. That's one of the things that I think was kind of one of those things that was kind of missing from his career because he was a he was a he was a really good solid all around player from his days in Portland and San Antonio. Um, but I think that the one thing, like I said, that he just wasn't able to experience was going on deep playoff runs and being able to get to the NBA finals, unfortunately. Yeah, we thought that was all going to be this year. But yeah, unfortunate. I got very Chris Bosh vibes from this uh, mm, retirement. Yes, because yes. Both of those guys, I mean, they still had game in their tank and they definitely could have helped teams compete and contend for a championship but at the end of the day it was health over hoop so I mean it's very understandable and unfortunate that he had to retire um but yeah very Chris Bosch vibes where you know you hate to see it because you I mean such a beloved player in the NBA um but let's talk a little bit about LaMarcus Aldridge and his resume 2006 second overall pick by the Chicago Bulls traded to the Trailblazers made the all-rookie team, seven-time all-star, five-time all-NBA player, average 19.5 points per game and a little over eight rebounds a game. What are your thoughts of his uh, career overall in Trailblazers, Spurs, five games of the Nets? <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say that 
if you look at his career and you kind of put it up there with Chris Bosch's career prior to him going to Miami, I would probably say that's like those two are like right there neck and neck with each other. Because to me, um, if people are instantly going to uh, in their mind put Chris Bosch in the Hall of Fame, then I think you would probably have to put LaMarcus Aldridge in the Hall of Fame too for what he's been able to accomplish. I think he's definitely a Hall of Famer in my eyes because when I look at both those guys' careers, if you take out the fact that one guy was able to you know, team up with arguably the greatest player, if not the greatest player in NBA history in LeBron James and with D-Wade and be able to play on the Miami Heat, then I think those two are – that's a great conversation. I mean, like, let me ask you, Kush, like, who would you take between LaMarcus Aldridge and Chris Bosh if you had to – you know, if you were a GM and you were given the option to take either one of those guys? Are we talking about before Bosch joined the Heat? Yeah, before Bosch joined the Heat. I'm, I would take Chris Bosch. I think Chris yeah. Bosch was a lot more versatile and better on the yeah. defensive end. Yeah, uh, I would, yeah, I would say Bosch just edges it out because of his defense. I, I don't think that's the only thing I would say wasn't like notoriously known about Lamarcus Aldridge's game was his defense. But I would also say because. Chris Botch was a natural three-point shooter. I feel like Aldridge was a very mid-range player, and he kind of got forced towards his last two years in as a spur. to He kind of got forced to shoot the three more often because he loved to play in the post, the mid-range game, but he kind of got forced to shoot the three ball, whereas Chris Botch was a lot more uh, fluid and natural for him mm-hmm. for his game. But, yeah, uh, it's a good conversation to have between those two because I feel like those are two good players and – you can't go wrong if you had either one of those two on your team. If if you swap out, if my opinion, if you swap out Bosch for for Aldridge, I still think that Miami Heat is probably still a successful ball club. Aldridge is getting that rebound passing to Ray Allen in the corner. Ooh, that's a good, <laughs> hey, that's, a good hey, that's a good point though. That's a good point. What if you have gotten that rebound? Because Chris Bosch, Chris Bosch uh, blocking Danny Green in that corner. <laughs> that's true. That's true. So or, I mean, Aldridge, my fault. But yeah, I, yeah, I, I think. Aldridge was that rare breed towards the, the end of his career that we didn't see in the game anymore because we've talked about it multiple times, how the game is so three-point uh, revolved. And he was one of those guys who was back to the basket, mid-range big man that we saw in guys like Tim Duncan, Dirk Nowitzki, and then Brooke Lopez back in his days. And you could say uh, Chris Bosh as well too. And he did it at an exceptional level, averaging over 17 a game in 13 out of his 15 seasons in the NBA. So hell of a player. And uh, he made four all-star teams and three all-NBA teams in his days in Portland when he, where he played nine seasons there. If you're the Portland Trailblazers, are you retiring LaMarcus Aldridge's jersey? I think that all depends on uh, whether or not LaMarcus wants to have his jersey retired by Portland. Because, I mean, that that really wasn't like a bad relationship necessarily. I mean, they had like some really good relationships. Uh, they had some really good moments. Um I know that LaMarcus Aldridge probably like a lot of the highlights of his Portland days came with, you know, alongside Brandon Roy and then um, the beginning stages of Damian Lillard coming into the NBA. Um, Would have loved to have seen, you know, that have continued on with him him and and D. Lil, but you could probably say that maybe with Aldridge leaving, Damian Lillard was able to get more of a spotlight and able to, you know, really make the Portland Trailblazers his franchise right now. So um, ultimately, I don't know. I think that depends on Portland, but I, I think that was a, I think he was, a, he's definitely deserving of a Jersey retirement. If, if, if they decide to do so, uh, it's not to say that 
I don't think he deserves it or does, or he shouldn't. You know, it just all depends on how he feels about the Trailblazers as an organization. And Dame Lillard, he came out on Twitter and definitely said he, his jersey needs to be retired. And I'm kind of there with Damian Lillard. I, I think it's no doubt that the Trailblazers should retire his jersey because you could argue he's one of the best players of all time. He's top five, top ten in their entire franchise. And you could say he's one of the greatest big men of their franchise. Maybe Bill Walton he would have ahead of him. But outside of that, I really don't see too many guys that you can list ahead of him. Greg uh, no, God. <laughs> he's, a, he's a legend there. He is a legend of course, there. of course, of course. Um, but yeah, I mean, you kind of touched on it, but I, I don't know if you said your answer, but you, you inducting Aldridge in the hall of fame. Yeah. 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 For me, I, I'm, I'm, I would, if I had a vote, I would probably get him in there because to me, there's a lot of guys who are not in the hall of fame, unfortunately, that should be in because they have the numbers and they had the longevity and they have, uh, the only thing is, is like, I think the cool thing about the hall, the, uh, the basketball hall of fame is you don't necessarily need to win a championship or you don't need to have, it's not like the, the football or baseball hall of fame. Like your numbers don't have to be like God sending or like, they don't have to like be like out of this world. You know what I mean? Like you can get in with having like 17 a game or just under 20 points a game. And you get and as long as you made like, you know, some all-stars and as long as you had a pretty productive career, I would say, like, hey, LaMarcus Aldridge deserves to be in there. Yeah, it's a tough question for me because I think he's on the cusp of it. So, I mean, I'm not going to say yes, but I'm not going to say no. Would I be surprised if he made it? No. Would I be surprised if he didn't make it? No. So, he's kind of on the cusp. But, like you said, if I was a a voter, it's tough. It it, it is tough just because – he doesn't have that ring. So it, yeah. it, it, it is really tough. But, um, I mean, he definitely has the accolades and the individual accolades to show why he was a great player. But, I mean, he was on his way trying to get a ring with Brooklyn. But, I mean, you okay. know, life had different plans for him. So it, it's tough to say. If he would have got that ring, I think it would have been no doubt for sure Hall of Fame. Not first ballot, but he for sure would have been a Hall of Famer. Let's talk about a future Hall of Famer. Uh, no doubt, first ballot Hall of Famer, even if he retired today, today, right now. And that is Mr. Steph Curry, who has been on an absolute tear the month of April, has been very kind to Steph Curry this year. He might be on one of the hottest streaks we've ever seen from a player in the NBA while being stupidly efficient at the same time as well. Let me give you a stats real quick. In the month of April this year for Curry, He's averaged over 40 points a game, over six rebounds a game, almost four and a half assists on 55, 50, 91 shooting splits while playing 35 minutes a game. So he's not even playing crazy minutes. He has 11 straight 30 point uh, games. He's made 72 three pointers in the last 10 games. Four of those games, he had 10 or more three pointers made, which puts him at 21 games all time. And who's number two on that list? Clay Thompson, who only has five. I, I say only, but, but I mean, like, that's an insane number. But Curry's just literally has four times the amount as his second guy. And uh, this is this is where it kind of gets crazy. In the last 10 games, Curry has scored 35% of his team's points during this stretch. And it's crazy. He has to, right? The, th- the crazy thing is the Warriors are six and four through this stretch. So, I mean, he's single-handedly – keeping the Warriors playoff hopes alive. So what do you make of this absurd streak that Curry is on right now? I just want to say for all the people that were saying that 
with Kevin Durant leaving the Warriors and with, you know, Curry now having his safety blanket taken away from him or whatever, or, oh, Steph Curry's going to get exposed, or now that we are going to see Steph have to, quote-unquote, carry a team by himself, he's not going to be able to do it, and all this other, other stuff. I'm like, how do you feel? I mean, like, the NBA right now, I would say there is so much ample opportunity to score. It is, I think, harder to play defense in the NBA than it is to get 30 points in the NBA. Cause I think like a guy, like more guys are being able to rack up like 30 points in a game. Then it's harder to, to keep your opponent from getting 20 points a game. That, that, that's, that's just incredible how the offense in the, today's NBA is just going crazy. But Steph Curry, I mean, the, like you said, the efficiency, the leadership that he's displaying and the, the, the will that he's trying to literally carry his team into a play-in tournament and still keep them in the mix to get to the playoffs. I mean, I, I expected them to be in the mix for the playoffs. Um, obviously, the injury to Clay definitely kind of shook things a bit, but I still believe that they were going to be in at least the play-in tournament. And so far, they're still in that mix, and it's all because of Steph. And I think one of the things that you could argue – as to why Steph is having to carry so much of the load offensively is because I just don't think that the coaching staff have been able to create a system outside of give the ball to Steph at this point in time. Cause when the, cause when Steve Kerr initially was able to get there, yes, a lot of people say that Steve Kerr was the difference between the Warriors going from a good competitive team under Mark Jackson to then being able to be contenders in the Western Conference. But after they faced off against Cleveland the second time, that was when Cleveland was fully healthy and we were able to see them go toe-to-toe. Unfortunately, the Warriors had a lot of different injuries and had a lot of different guys injured, and they weren't able to close it out. Yeah, but I think if they would have played the third time, I think Cleveland would have beat them. Like, if if they don't have KD on that roster, I still think that LeBron would have been able to beat Steph, Clay, and Draymond. And I just think that would have been that. Um, But ultimately, I feel like the reason that the Warriors are struggling is because I'm just not seeing any nuance from Steve Kerr. I'm not seeing anything that's wowing me as far as his coaching. And you could say that he's had the luxury of having a player like Steph, of having a defensive and uh, a, a coach on the floor in Draymond, having a shooter like Clay Thompson, having a top two, top three, maybe even the best player in the league in Kevin Durant. And now that you kind of take a lot of that away and he's only got Draymond and Steph, it's like outside of that, you kind of have to, there has to be some element of coaching and there has to be something besides just those two carrying the load on the squad because we're still trying to figure out what's going on with Wiseman on why, you know, he's still trying to find himself in the NBA, but a lot of the other pieces that I thought would be better, like Andrew Wiggins, I thought he would maybe have a breakout year. I thought Kelly Oubre might have a breakout year. We just haven't seen that. And I don't know if it's necessarily because of the system of play or it's because they're so kind of locked in and like, we got to get the ball to Steph because Steph is the go-to guy here and we know he's going to put the ball in the hole. So I don't know, but 
kudos to Steph Curry. He's going crazy right now and definitely in that MVP conversation, no doubt. But I just think that if the Warriors are looking to get better, they either need to do something this offseason and maybe look to address their roster or maybe they need to address their coach. So I'm going to hit on both points you just talked about. But first thing about Curry and his streak that he's on. I mean, we've seen streaks that are going crazy, like Michael Jordan, Kobe, James Harden, and more. But I think what makes this streak insanely absurd is how efficient he's been. Literally, if you look at his number, every other three-pointer he takes is going in. And he's averaging (laughs) over seven a game. So it's baffling what he's doing right now. But – yeah, you're absolutely right with with uh, the Warriors struggling because this season without Steph Curry, the Warriors are one and seven in that lineup, and including a loss to the Toronto Raptors, who are I think tenth or eleventh in the Eastern Conference right now, and they lost them by fifty four points. So, <laughs> I mean, Steph's a Steph's a huge part of their offense, that's for sure. But this season, right now, they're ninth in the West, twenty nine twenty nine. Um, and last season, when Curry only played five games, the Warriors went one and four, but that's I mean, Curry, Curry was slow start back then. He also had a slow start to this year as well, too. But we've seen what now how he's playing. Um, and they haven't had Clug Thompson the last two seasons. So, it, But there's definitely been fingers pointing towards the coaching staff and the coaching ability and Steve Kerr. And mind you, if you look at Steve Kerr's resume, five NBA champion or finals appearances, three NBA championships, best record in NBA history, and a coach of the year. But – I'm right there with you. I think see, he's tough. So are you are you saying that Steve Kerr is overrated? I would say overrated in the sense of uh, a large portion of, I think, the, the building blocks that led to his first championship were created, obviously, by Mark Jackson. I feel I feel now that's not to, not that's not to say that um, to take anything away from Steve Kerr as a coach. But I just feel like the building pieces were already there in play. You already had a hungry, motivated, young core group of guys in Steph, Draymond, and Clay, And you bring in a new coach. And then I think that they were just going to be motivated already to get better. But I don't necessarily put it on the coach. I put it on the, the talent of the players and the, the fact that they got better in the offseason. And also, they did have some fortunate injuries go their way in that playoff run that they had. But also, when you look at the, the multiple finals appearances, I think that just comes down to talent. And when you take strip away the talent that the Warriors have had and been able to have the luxury of having, I mean, you take the talent away, then that's when the real coaching has to begin. And I, I, I think one of the, the things that deceived a lot of different people is like similarly with Luke Walton. I mean, a lot of people got fooled into thinking that he was this young, up-and-coming, bridal uh, coach that was going to, you know, take the Lakers into a new direction because of what he did in a few games with the Warriors. But I'm like, they had the best record in the league and they had the best player, one of, one of if not at that time, the best player in the league. So I'm like, what are you talking about? And then, so it's the same thing I have to say with Steve Kerr. I'm like, you have the luxury of having a player in Steph Curry and you've had the luxury of having a player in Kevin Durant and you have the luxury of having a, a system in play that benefits all the talent that you have. But again, when you strip away the talent and you're only left with just one guy, it's like the Warriors go from being the the top of the tree to being almost like the Washington Wizards. (laughs) 
Yeah, I you hit the nail on the head. I was going to talk about Luke Walton and how he took over when Steve Kerr got injured. The Warriors actually went 47-8 and eight with Luke Walton as, as a head coach. And then you saw what he did with the Lakers, what he's doing with the Kings right now. I still don't know how he has a head coaching gig <laughs> as of right now. It, it's baffling. Um, and the Kings, the Kings organization just – I saw a funny tweet the other day, and it was someone said that – Oklahoma City Thunder, either lost in trade or in free agency. Kevin Durant, Westbrook, Ibaka, Harden, Oladipo, Paul George, DeMontis Sabonis. And they were like, and they still have a brighter future than the Sacramento Kings. (laughs) So, so it's just, I mean, that's a different topic. But yeah, I, I definitely think Steve Kerr is an overrated coach, not to knock what he was able to do. But I mean, when you have a God squad basically in the talks of the greatest team of all time with maybe you could say two of the top 15 players to ever play the game in Kevin Durant and Steph Curry, you could definitely say that. Um, and then you have some of the best role players in Draymond Green and Clay Thompson. <laughs> and uh, I mean, it, it's crazy. And my whole thing with Steve Kerr, which is another reason why I think he is an overrated coach is James Wiseman. I think he has not developed at all his rookie season. Granted, he has been dealing with injuries here and there, but you look at the progression of LaMelo Ball. You look at the uh, progression of Anthony Edwards. I think Anthony Edwards is a better example than LaMelo Ball, where Anthony Edwards was horrible in terms of efficiency from uh, in shooting the basketball. But look at him now. He's literally averaging over 20 points a game and is looking like he's going to be rookie of the year. And, I mean, James Wiseman, a guy who you can argue after LaMelo Ball has the most tools and the mo- probably is the most skilled player after LaMelo Ball, it really isn't, isn't, has nothing to show for. I, I mean, I, I would think that's one of the best big men you can put alongside Steph Curry, a guy who can pick and pop and pick and roll at the same time. And guy, when you have to double Steph Curry already passing half court, that's a perfect guy. But I really haven't seen any development with uh, James Wiseman this season. And that's a credit to the coaching and, uh, or I should say the lack of coaching um, in Golden State. And you can say the same thing about several of their draft picks that they've kind of missed on uh, these past few years. I mean, I would say after they picked up Jordan Bell in the draft, their draft ring really hasn't been all that good. And you look at when they picked up Jordan Poole in the draft, I thought that that was going to be a nice role player for them. That didn't really turn out to anything. And then you look at now when they got a high draft pick that everybody kind of was like hoping and like looking toward and hoping that it was going to maybe turn into something that could help out Steph and help out uh, this Warriors franchise, turn things around and get them back into the playoff picture. It really hasn't turned into anything. So is it the fact that the GM has all of a sudden lost his touch with picking talented players and not being able to, you know, get the the, the right tools and in, in, in play to help the franchise be able to be competitive? Or is it the fact that the coaching is just, not meshing with the talent that you have or not taking advantage of the players and their capabilities that you have. Because I think at this point, when you take away uh, KD and then also on top of that, you take away Clay Thompson, that's a big, that's a big loss and a big chunk of points that you're taking away from the Warriors organization, especially with Clay who could at any point in time, just light it up. And so I think the, the the biggest problem that the Warriors have had post Kevin Durant is just Clay's been injured and the team dynamic has not been the same. And also 
their entire roster is totally different. It's a lot of young guys who have been in and out of different NBA teams. And you got, you know, still some guys in like Andrew Wiggins and Kelly Oubre who have, yes, bounced around the league a little bit, but you would have hoped that you would have seen something come out of them in this organization with this coaching staff, with the players surrounding them. You would have hoped that you would have saw something that would have gave you at least something to look forward to in the future. Like, okay, we might, you know, not be the best team in the, in the, in the organ, in the entire uh, league, in the entire association, but at least in the Western conference, we're going to be a competitive out. So that way, when we get into the, and we, when we get into the playoffs and whoever we get in that first round, it's going to be a tough, tough, tough first round for whoever we face off against. And so far it's looking like the Warriors, even if they somehow get to the play in tournament are not going to be making any sort of uh, run whatsoever at the playoffs. Yeah. As of right now, the Warriors are 29 and 30. I said 29, 29 before, um, but they are 29 and 39 spot. They're, Tied with the Spurs for the 10th spot, the last spot in the playing tournament, and the Pelicans are three and a half games behind them uh, in the 11th spot. So, I mean, coming down to the wire, anything can happen, and it would be there, there would be a lot of talks about Steve Kerr and the Warriors front office um, if they definitely don't make the playing tournament. So, we could see a big shakeup there. And, I'm, and I need to ask you, like, so – if the Warriors don't somehow make the playing tournament, is that a referendum on Steph? Because, you know, like we just talked about how he's been putting up crazy numbers and he's been putting up this and he's been playing like this and he's been doing all this. And a lot of people are saying like, look, if he can't get them to the playoffs, like, cause I mean, it's like, imagine if LeBron had like this team and if LeBron didn't make it to the playoffs, everybody would be on his head. And even when he got injured with the Lakers, people were still on his head and it's like, yo, like he got injured and the the, t- the whole thing fell off the rails. So, like, my thing is, is like, I don't want to be heavily critical of Steph if the Warriors don't make it to the playoffs. But I think he does have to shaver some blame, even though, yes, he was injured and did miss a, li- a little bit of uh, the season. And that could have definitely played a role in the Warriors maybe potentially not making it to the postseason. Uh, I think it would be, yeah, obviously, Steph, I mean, you have people on Twitter and NBA Twitter and everything that are just trolls that are always going to, you know, blame the main player on that team. But I feel like you got to look at the players around him as well. Like Kelly Oubre Jr., who had a breakout year last year with the Phoenix Suns, and this year he's only shooting 31% from three (laughs) as of right now. So, I mean, you brought that guy in knowing that Klay Thompson's going to be out, but he hasn't really produced. So I'm not saying you're going to put it on him, but I think – that's when you need to start looking at the coaching staff to either get Kelly Oubre more involved or, you know, to get him going in some way to take the pressure off of Steph Curry or even Andrew Wiggins in, in uh, Wednesday night, Wednesday, Wednesday night's game against uh, the 76ers, Andrew Wiggins had a game tying layup under 30 seconds left and he straight up bricked it. He smoked the layup to tie the game and the Warriors ended up losing to the Wizards. So, I mean, it's a little stuff like that where, what the hell can Steph do in that situation? Like he put him in a situation, granted he didn't have the greatest games against the the Wizards, but he put him in a situation where he has, he can't basically do anything about that. If your right. teammate smokes a layup, he smokes a layup. Yeah, that, what the, that, that's, that's, that's a loss on me. No way. You know what I'm yeah. saying? So it, it's tough, but um, you're always going to have those people that are always going to go for those best of the best guys. Um, 
So we'll just have to see how the, the season plays out. Let's move on. ESPN came out with probably one of their worst lists I've ever seen. <laughs> um, and that's saying a lot because ESPN comes out with some pretty terrible lists. Um, but this one might definitely be up there. And every year they come out with a top 25 players under 25 years. Let me go through the list real quick. I'll go one through 25, starting from the top. Um, they had Luca number one, Zion number two, LaMelo number three, Donovan Mitchell number four, number five, Jason Tatum, six, De'Aaron Fox, seven, Ben Simmons, eight, Devin Booker, nine, Bam Adebayo, 10, SGA, 11, Brandon Ingram, 12, Jalen Brown, 13, Jamal Murray, uh, 14, Michael Porter Jr., 15, John Morant, 16, Trey Young, 17, Mikhail Bridges, 18, DeMont Sabonis, 19, Anthony Edwards, 20, DeAndre in 21, Tyrese Halliburton, 22, John Collins, 23, Jared Allen, 24, Lonzo Ball, and 25, Colin Sexton. Um, before I go on my rant, what are your reactions to this list, Corey? Because I, I mean, hey, there, there, there's one eye-popping one that everyone was oh, talking yeah. about. I mean, LaMelo Ball, top three? Yeah. Top three? Hey, it's not to say that LaMelo Ball is a bad player. Absolutely. Not at all. He went number, number uh, three. Like, three in the draft for a reason to Charlotte. So, but here's the thing about putting LaMelo ball number three is that you're putting LaMelo ball above Donovan Mitchell, above Jason Tatum, above Ben Simmons, above Devin Booker. Bam. I'm like, damn dude. Like, yo, like I understand if you want to put LaMelo high, but it's like, yo, like where's the respect to some of them dudes, especially when you consider the fact that Devin Booker has his team in, one of the top spots in the league right now. So it's like, it's just kind of disrespectful and it's kind of like overlooking a lot of different uh, guys. And it's, it's just, whenever you do these lists, it's always going to be controversial because people are always going to say, no, this guy should be here. No, this guy should be there. But I don't know, putting a, a guy who's a rookie and yes, who has played well for the, the time he was, you know, especially the time he was balling out, he was playing very well. And it's really been a shock to the the Charlotte Hornets and has just helped them I think be a, a better team this year um I I don't know how you put them number three when we still there's still the jury is still out on far as like how on the potential that he has but I think if you're going based solely off potential maybe you could put him arguably number three but I I think from right here right now I gotta go with I would go with D Mitchell, Jason Tatum, Ben Simmons over LaMelo Ball right now if you gave me the option. Didn't Jason Tatum his rookie season? I mean, granted he had Kyrie Irving, but didn't he take the Celtics to the Eastern Conference Finals and <laughs> took LeBron James to game seven? Kyrie Irving was injured too. So exactly. I mean, yeah, so. so I don't know what the hell these dudes just talked about, but yeah, you basically hit the nail on the head with LaMelo. Um, even if it's based off of potential, I'm still not putting him at three because <laughs> Potential is so much compared to what people have already accomplished. Like I mean, look I at the gap. Look at the gap from Anthony Edwards, who was the number one overall pick, by the way, to Lamelo Ball. Anthony Edwards is nineteen, and Lamelo Ball is number three. That's wild. I mean, I, I I do think that there is a gap. That gap is big between Lamelo and Anthony Edwards, but I wouldn't I, know if I wouldn't say it's like that big, like these big. But I would say like, yeah, it's like you said, there is a gap. But I just don't. I don't I'm, I'm just saying there's a gap in a way that Lamelo helps his ball club win, whereas Anthony yeah. Edwards, 
he fills up the stat sheet. I'm not saying that he doesn't help his ball club win, but it's not really translating he's, to wins. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, he, and he's plus he's still a rookie, so I'm like, you right, know, we'll see, we'll right, see. But right, like, I'm not. I don't I'm know. I just like it's just weird to me that ESPN kind of rolled out this list and didn't. Ex- I need to know, and they just kind of like didn't. If, if they didn't expect there to be any sort of backlash or didn't expect anybody to like point out, like, I mean, because. I'm, I'm, I've been seeing tweets where like LeBron and when LeBron and LaMelo were injured and people were like saying like day three of LaMelo and LeBron being injured or day 50 of LaMelo and LeBron well, I mean, being that's, injured that's what and they're posting like random stuff on uh, social media or whatever so it's just I don't know I just find it funny because I, we obviously know we obviously see like certain you know like ESPN and like the sports media world have obviously their favorite players or they have you know everybody has like their favorite players that they you know root for or whatever or have like a bias to which is nothing wrong with that but when you make your bias so blatant to the point where you don't even see reality I I think that's where it's like yo time out something's not right here yes 100% entertainment over factual stuff or just content in general um and honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if they definitely put LaMelo down on purpose because it definitely got a reaction out of us. And look at us. We're talking about this ESPN true. list right true, now. So, true, I mean, true. if anything, they're doing their job, hell of a job, you know, get us to talk, talk about ESPN. But it's just me, me as a writer or like if I'm writing an article, I just can't wrap my head around writing LaMelo <laughs> at number three. Like as much as they say, fake it, fake it. We'll, we'll give you a shit ton of money just to fake it. I can't. Cause that, that, that basically my credibility just tanks <laughs> right there. So at that point, I'm just like, whatever. But outside of LaMelo ball, I still think that there are guys that are ranked a little too high. First, I'm going to say Michael Porter jr. There's no way he should be above Trey young, the Sabonis. <laughs> no way he should be above guys like that. I get it. Michael Porter jr. Is a hell of a player. He's not the number one guy on their team, but Trey young, the, hey, the guy just I mean, averaged John, 28 even, a game. Even, even John, John Murray. Murray. Yeah, yeah, I forgot. Even John, John Murray. That's crazy. Um, and then you have Mikhail Bridges over a guy like DeMontis Sabonis. And John. I feel like John Collins is so disrespected on this list at 22. Oh, yeah. He, is, yeah. he is disrespected just because I guess he's been overshadowed by Trey Young and Clint Capella or whatever. But the numbers he puts up in Atlanta has been ridiculous. Um, I feel like he's too low. Tatum already said he should be number three. I think Tatum should be over Donovan Mitchell as well, too. Um, ben Simmons, you're talking about the defensive player of the year, potentially. John Morant, Trey Young, Sabonis, John Collins, like I said. And then um, hey, at least they gave uh, uh, some respect to your boy SGA at number 10, though. <laughs> to be honest, call me crazy. I think he's rated a little high, too. <laughs> like, I would put Trey Young and John Morant over him. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely think those two guys are better point guards than SGA. And that's not a knock against SGA at all. Cause I think SGA's basketball IQ and awareness yeah. is impeccable for a guy who's only 20, 21 years old, but um, just John Moran and Trey Young. I think it, <laughs> I, I, I guarantee you if John Moran and Trey Young had a guy like Chris Paul on their team, they would be absolutely blossoming right now. So, I mean, it, it's tough. And definitely with the rookies, like, Yes, LaMelo Ball is really high, but I think even Anthony Edwards and Tyrese Halliburton, I think they're kind of high too. Um, if, if this is based off of potential, yeah, cool, but they haven't shown me anything. They're rookies. <laughs> and I get it. Next year, if they're, they're ranked a little higher, yeah, cool, I get it. You're basing it off of what they did on their rookie year, but they really haven't done anything compared to what some of these guys 
have done like uh john collins or like a guy like um where is he anthony edward deandre Ayton, you know guys that have been playing well at a high level i don't know that's just my opinion <laughs> let's move on i'm about to blow a gasket talking about this espn list uh let's talk about some ncaa basketball we wanted to talk about this a couple weeks ago but didn't get the chance to so we're just going to do a quick little recap um 63 games came and went still no perfect brackets in March madness. Uh, I don't know when the day we'll ever see a perfect bracket because just upsets left and right. If you got a perfect bracket, like that, that, that probably would have just be like, yo, that's like better than hitting the lottery. Almost. It's like, yo, I can't believe this actually happened. I think chance, chance wise, maybe money wise. Hell no. Give me the lottery. Um, but it's crazy because the two teams that we had winning the championship met up in the championship game. You had Baylor, I had Gonzaga, and it was kind of beautiful. It was the number one team in the nation versus the number two team in the nation. And it, Gonzaga was undefeated 31 and 0, and Baylor was 27 and 2. But the championship game didn't go <laughs> as we imagined. It was a very, very lopsided game, and Baylor took the game with ease, got their first title, and the Gonzaga joined the 2013-2014 Wichita State and 2014-2015 Kentucky and being the only teams that went undefeated until the championship game but did not win it. So kind of on the wrong side of history. But uh, shout out to Baylor. Shout out to you, Corey, for uh, picking Baylor to win it all. Well, I think on the early stages uh, before the tournament started, I felt confident in Baylor just because of their guard play. But I didn't expect, like, for the most part, like, throughout the tournament, they really didn't see any sort of, like, adversity, which usually kind of, like, makes me nervous because if you don't, like, come into any close games or you have to, like, grind it out or anything like that, that kind of makes me nervous. But I had seen them, like, I had noticed, like, throughout the season they have played close games before. So if it got close down the stretch, I wasn't, like, too nervous about that. But um, the thing that made me nervous on the opposite end with Gonzaga is they've blown pretty much everybody out that they played and they really hadn't played a whole lot of close games. And I think the biggest difference ultimately from why they got blown out against Baylor was one, I think Baylor just ran them out of the gym. And I think number two, UCLA pushed Gonzaga to the ultimate limit to literally they were on their heels and literally about to get if Johnny Juzang doesn't get a charge and hits that shot like before regulation i'm like yo like they they ucla goes to the championship so i mean ultimately when you look at how ucla their run to even get to the final four and to push baylor how i mean excuse me push gonzaga how they did literally the the to decide the game, it came down to a bank shot. When you think about it, it came down to a ha- almost half, like a half court bank shot, and that that's a tough way to lose, obviously. But uh, I think that 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 was great in the moment for for obviously Gonzaga to keep their season alive and you know keep their perfect season alive. But I think that game really just that that pushed them to the limit, man. And there was only a one day's rest in the quick turnaround on Monday and. It was like, hey, it's time to go to the track, and it's like, wait, we just we 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 just already went to the track against UCLA, so yeah, I think they were really just like out of gas, and I think also just Baylor made them look like boys, little yeah. boys, like yeah. their 
Baylor's rebound big men were yeah. just getting rebounds, offensive rebounds. It looked like literally like Tori and Prince had to go teach him how to get a rebound. You grab the board, <laughs> bring it down. You know what I'm saying? Because they didn't know what the hell they were doing. And every time they were just mismatched central. Every time one of those guards, Davion Mitchell, had a big man on him, it was game over. Workout. It, it was, was, it was workout. game over. Just a little cross hezzy snatchback is a bucket. That's literally what they were doing all game long. All game. And, and it was just, it just wasn't really fair when you look at it. And kudos to Gonzaga, like, to even, like, get to this point and to, like, this is obviously, like, Gonzaga's best team in, like, their school history. And to, you know, see, like, <laughs> your best team in your school's history get done up like that in the championship mm-hmm. game, that that's that's a tough watch. So, if, you know. It definitely didn't help either that. In the beginning of the game, Jalen Suggs out of foul trouble. Of course, of course, you know, especially coming off the game that he had, and obviously mm-hmm. the the big shot that he hit. But I think uh, for Gonzaga, the biggest takeaway I think from this season is um, you had a perfect season, damn near. Um, you lost it in the championship game, but I think you should be encouraged at the fact that you do still have a few guys that are going to come back. And depending on how the recruiting goes, they're supposed to get. Well, it's uh, already it's already been going good because they got Chet Holgram. They got Chet Holgram, so I'm like, you know, like the the recruiting is already looking pretty good. The yeah. same dude who went to the same high school as uh, Jalen Suggs. So, I mean, like that's pretty good already. So I think Gonzaga is in a good spot. I think the 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 sad part is obviously you know Mark Few like not still not being able to get that elusive first national championship, but. I think if they uh, if they stick with it, they'll have a good shot at being in it next year too. So, uh, kudos to Baylor. I think uh, uh, the coach for Baylor, like especially credit to him because he in his first you know initial press conference when he got announced as coach, he said like we're not coming here to just you know try and make the tournament. We're trying to here come here and you know ultimately win a national championship, and that's exactly what they went out and did. And uh, I think for the Baylor Bears, this was a season in which that could have easily been a difficult one because they got hit with COVID and you didn't know whether or not they were going to be able to continue, but being able to, you know, get all the way to the championship game and close and cap it off. uh, It's got to be great, especially going up against the number one team in the nation and preventing them from having a perfect season. That's even, that's the icing on the cake right there too. Absolutely. Um, And I know, I know people, love March Madness because the favorite part of the tournament is watching the upsets and the Cinderella stories, which I love as well too. But I think what makes March Madness so fun for me and why I watch it is the players that make a name for themselves. And there were many names made in the tournament. And honestly, this is the best place to try to rise, uh, you know, get your draft stock up there. And I mean, probably one of the best examples whose draft stock rose the most in this tournament was Dante DiVincenzo, a guy who probably would wasn't even getting drafted, had those amazing games for Villanova and uh, ended up getting drafted in the first round by the Milwaukee Bucks. And now he's a key role player for them in the NBA. So is there any, couple, is there any names that come to your mind when uh, you think about guys whose draft stock rose? Uh, definitely. I would say, uh, I, when I think of the tournament, um, I think of uh, Buddy Hield because, like, he had been doing it all throughout the season. But I think um, 
his draft stock rose even higher because of the fact that he did it in in the tournament with uh, Oklahoma. And then also, I think John Morant, because John Morant, I think people had talked about him being a NBA draft pick, but I don't know if people were talking about him being number two throughout the course of his uh, season with Murray State. And when he got to the tournament against Marquette and went off, had a yeah. triple double. I'm like, dog, like, yo, like he, this dude put on a show. Like he didn't just like that. Cause that's the thing. That's a, there's a difference between good college players and great college players and guys who you're like, yo, he's just, he's just, he's just putting on a show. He's just not even, he's not even, it's not, like he's not trying. It's just, he's literally at this point, he's just trying to impress the scouts and he's trying to impress the next level so i mean john moran his performance literally was like one of those things of recent memory where i was like yo like this dude is going to the league he's going to the league yeah um how about this year anybody that comes to mind uh just going based off of uh what a lot of different guys were talking about as far uh, experts were talking about as far as draft i did not know and i hey we i live in cali I live in Cali and I was not paying attention at all to UCLA at all. I was even more so paying attention about USC because I knew they had the Mobley brothers. So I was like, all right, I know like they, those two are definitely going to be in the league, but I did not know who Johnny Juzang was before the tournament started, but I damn sure know his name now because that dude was the, one of the main reasons and a key reason why UCLA got as far as they did and almost could have got to the championship game because that dude was just so efficient. Like it Mm -hmm. wasn't the fact that he was making buckets. It was the fact that he was just so damn efficient. Like I was seeing him put up like 50% this game, 45% this game. I mean, like, and it just kept, he just kept getting better and better and better. And I think a lot of times when I was watching throughout the tournament, the key difference in like the late stages of close games was sometimes teams didn't have like a go-to guy. Like in that game against Michigan, you could tell Michigan really played down to the level of UCLA. And then when things got close and things were tight, they didn't have a guy who they could throw the ball to and be like, okay, go and get us a bucket. UCLA did. And they did it with Johnny Juzang. They were like, yo, go and take us to the promised land. And that's what he did he definitely made his draft stock rise. And I think this young man is, he, he could have the potential of being a clay Thompson S type player. I know that's a lot. I know that is, I know that's a lot to, to put on his shoulders, but when I looked Actual at him, bias. <laughs> when I looked, when I looked at him and when I looked at his, his play style, I just, in my mind, I just kept thinking clay Thompson. I just kept thinking like this dude reminds me so much of clay and he has that, 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 that just quick motion with it where he can just get to the cup and, and not that many dribbles. Cause when he has to dribble a lot, he's not as productive, but when he just is able to make one move solid move with a few dribbles or so and just get it off, it was just easy. Yeah, for sure. John Chizang definitely his draft stock rose and he declared for the draft, but also decided to maintain his eligibility. So he'll have a big decision for draft time uh, in the NBA, but a couple guys is Max Aismas, I think, from Oral Roberts. Guy led the league in assists and in uh, points in the nation, and he definitely put Oral Roberts on his back, so I could definitely see him being 
you know, a second rounder that teams uh, take a chance on. And then there's yeah, he this... could be like an Isaiah Thomas-esque uh, mm-hmm. type guy. And there's this one guy. I, I don't know how to say his name for the life of me, <laughs> but he played one game, and that was Utah State Center, His uh, the Portuguese guy. Yeah, yeah. I think I know. Namias Kita, something like that. Yeah, Some Portuguese yeah. guy. But he was going up against Texas Tech, Matt McClung and Texas Tech. And he was flirting with a triple-double, almost a quadruple-double in his only game (laughs) in the tournament. And this guy reminded me a lot of Mitchell Robinson, the Mm. big guy who literally, you come to the rim, get that shit out of here, (laughs) literally. And a guy who just rises up. And he's the guy just under the basket. Will set hard picks, roll to the rim, and he'll get the job done. And I think he'll – if he declares for the draft, I'm not too sure if he did or did not, but if he declares for the draft, I think he'll probably go under the radar and be a second-round pick, which any team he, – he'll remind me a lot of, like, what the Clippers got with DeAndre Jordan, what the Knicks got with uh, Mitchell Robinson, you know, those late, mid-second-round players that turn out to be hell of centers. You know, don't stretch yeah. the floor in today's age, but set hard picks, plays hard-nosed basketball. Yeah, kind of like Clint Capella as well. Right. And then, obviously, you have Jalen Suggs and Evan Mobley basically solidifying themselves as top <laughs> yeah. five picks. Yeah. And the crazy thing about this uh, this up-and-coming draft is that we got so captivated about what we saw as far as in March Madness, but people forget, or mm-hmm. those who weren't paying attention, the G League is popping mm-hmm. off with the, the with those guys who are in the G Kalinga, League as well. So Jalen I mean, Green. Like Jalen Green and all those cats as well. And then you still got the dudes who are playing overseas as well that are going to come in. So, I mean, the, this year's draft, and then also can't forget about, you know, Kate Cunningham from Oklahoma State and, like, all these different guys who are going to be in the mix for the draft. There's a reason why a lot of people are saying this year's draft has the potential, has the potential to be a very deep draft as far as maybe one through maybe seven. I would say I would be, I would definitely say one through five through one through could six. be a could be a franchise changer exactly. Could be, could and I think I think that's why this draft could be one of the greatest of all time. But only time would tell. Yeah. But um, yeah, I, I feel like we keep saying that about every single draft: the Zion, John Morant, RJ. Yeah, like, yeah, but I feel good. like this one does have like a lot of different guys who for sure. And yeah, I definitely and I definitely like, think yeah. the fact that you have guys that played in the G League that have played against professional competition now with Jalen Green, Jonathan Kaminga, I definitely think you can be like, all right, we've been here, done that. Let's just play in the NBA now. We're just playing well-known professionals rather than not so well-known professionals. Yeah, exactly. You know what I'm saying? So, so I, mean, I think it'll also be a good test to see if those guys who played in the G League for the one year have a little bit of a leg up on the guys who decided to play in college for just the one year. And you kind of get to see the comparison on who maybe is a step ahead and who's maybe a step behind. And, you know, it's a great conversation to have because I feel like being able to have the pick of the litter of being able to decide to go pro or being able to decide to go college is what it should be as far as the basketball slate for so long, it was just, you go to college then you go pro and then that is what it is. But now you got guys who are going overseas. You got guys who can go to the G League. You got guys who are in college. And now it's, it's a lot more broadened out as far as the talent pool. And I think that's actually going to play good dividends for the NBA for the up and coming next generation of their, uh, their NBA talent, because you're going to be able to get a good mixture and it's not going to also kill the uh, college game either. 
Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I think it's, this is re- going to be really revolutionary, uh, this draft class coming up. And I think, honestly, that could be a big reason why Duke and Kentucky weren't the teams that we knew them to be because, honestly, Jalen Green could have gone to one of those schools, Kamin could have gone to one of those schools and definitely changed their entire program around. And it would just be a normal Kentucky and Duke season. But, yeah, that we, we could definitely see uh, a revolutionizing um, change in – NCAA and you know kind of that leap to the NBA all right let's wrap up this episode with probably the craziest news going on in sports right now I know not a lot of people are familiar with soccer our listeners our uh, viewers and stuff like that so we're gonna give you guys a quick uh, bit of what's going on outside the USA because honestly this could be one of the craziest moments in sports history going on right now, and that is the European Super League. If you guys haven't heard about it, it's basically 12 of the top European soccer clubs agreed to create the Super League, and it's basically a league that's separate from UEFA's Champions League, the Europa League, but it's similar in a way where it wants to powerhouse teams in Europe to form a league that produces high-quality soccer. So, so far in that league, there were 12 teams that compiled it, and that that was from the English Premier League, Spanish La Liga, and Italian Serie A. And that was Arsenal, Chelsea, Liverpool, Manchester City, Manchester United, Tottenham Hotspur. And then from the Italian League, it was AC Milan, Inter Milan, and Juventus. And then from the Spanish League, Atletico Madrid, Barcelona, and Real Madrid. So kind of the idea was created by the owners and the presidents of each of these clubs, kind of like, you can't sit with us kind of a league and we're going (laughs) to hoard all the money and get all the best players in the world. And we're basically going to have a kind of a playoff atmosphere uh, league slash tournament to where we're just the best of the best going out at every single week. And uh, the league had plans to offer permanent spots to some of the best clubs in the world that could play matches midweek while still allowing them to play in their domestic leagues. So before we get into what happened after it was announced and everything, what were your thoughts initially when you just heard about this Super League, not getting into anything else? I thought, because uh, there had been talks years back, like back in 2009, 2010, that of a league forming up like this. But the only problem was obviously money, capital how do you get the money to be able to form a league like this and would each and every single one of the top tier teams around the world agree to want to do something like this that was the biggest thing and i think the only reason that this actually almost was about to work was because the english teams decided that they were going to be in on it because if you don't get the english teams in on it then you don't get a super league you have to get the english teams because whether people like it or not English the the English Premier League is one of the top tier leagues as far as entertainment and as far as the draw that they get worldwide. So when you have the top teams like a Chelsea, like Manchester City, like Manchester United, like Liverpool in these in this potential European Super League that have the best players from around the world representing all different types of countries, I think on paper it sounds good, but like you said the the there are obviously pitfalls with it the only reason that i wasn't so outraged like a lot of people were was because i was trying to wait to see how things played out because we had never really ever seen a league in which it was a league created by the clubs themselves uefa and fifa are the governing bodies of the sport of football or soccer and those are supposed to be the organizations that determine like 
who plays in the World Cup, who gets to go to uh, different tournaments and things of that nature. And so when they saw that these clubs and their owners and their presidents were gearing up to form this, they literally went ham and decided your players are not going to be able to play in the World Cup. Your players are going to be banned from playing in the Champions League. Your teams are going to be banned from playing in any sort of European competition. They went full on ham with all these different threats, all these different sanctions, all these. And, it, and even now, there's still different things that are reverberating from the backlash of this league potentially almost forming. So I think on a spectrum, you can look at it. And from my perspective, I looked at it and I was like, I understand if you're an owner, why you would want to do this because you, because for, for so long, a lot of these big clubs, the, the money is in the champions league. And if your team didn't qualify to get into the Champions League, you're missing out on so much money and you're missing out on a ton of money. But if you look at the Premier League, why is it that a team that finishes 16th, 17th, 18th make almost more or just as much as the team that wins the Champions League? That makes no sense whatsoever. So, I mean, UEFA and FIFA literally went to war over this so that way they could protect their own pockets and that way they could always could continue to have their monopoly on the sport so that way there's it's almost like with the NCAA and the different conferences that are in college football and college basketball now conferences want to have different ways of how they go about you know, different rules, like every conference is different. Every conference has a different rule. Every conference has different layouts of how the land works. So just to relate back to, you know, those who might not know what we're talking about, imagine if the NCAA told people and told each conference, like, no, you can't do this. Everybody has to do it this way. And by the way, you can't make any money off of the teams or, or all the money that you generate from your conference tournament goes to the NCAA. Doesn't go to any of the conferences, doesn't go to any of the schools. All the money that you generate goes to us. It'd be like, yo, what the heck? So I understand why the owners did what they did because you as a business person are looking at the club that you own as a business. Whereas the fans, the players, the coaches, don't look at the sport and don't look at the club that they are a part of as a business. They look at this club as a religion. They look at it as a tie to the community. Like they look at the sport as the reason that they, for some people, why they get up in the morning, for some people, why they still breathe. So, I mean, if you were to create this sort of monolithic and monopoly in which 12 teams dictate who gets what and who is able to come in and who is is not able to earn anything it's all just money based then i get why people were upset i get the outrage but the over just i, I guess i guess the the there was some fake outrage that i would say because some people were going kind of going over the top with it i feel and we didn't even really see how things even played out with it because i was kind of intrigued to see how they were kind of layer things out especially when you consider the fact that uefa announced that in 2024-25, they're going to completely change how the Champions League works. They're going to create a Champions League in which they're going to have more teams, more games. And so in, in a situation where you already have managers complaining about there's too many games, 
there's players are getting injured. We don't have a, a, a long preseason. We don't have enough time to have a preseason, especially even now in a pandemic. Why are we having so many games mushed together? And why? And it's seeing players get hurt at a drastic high rate, and it's not being. And we're not being able to see the best players compete. Well, I mean, you're going to add more games onto it with the Champions League in the future. And then also with the World Cup, the World Cup is going to expand to more games in the future, which, again, adds more games into a tournament that doesn't need it, adds more teams to a tournament that doesn't need it, and adds potentiality to get more injuries when you don't need the best players in the world getting injured. Because people watch this sport on a global basis, because especially when you look at the top tier of the sport, it's... It's incredible what they can do with with soccer and with uh, with the football. So I'm like, it's it's just incredible to me that there was such you know outrage about this when you look at the Champions League, and you look at UEFA, and you look at FIFA. They do dirty stuff all the time. They do backdoor deals all the time. They do whatever they want, and so there was no talks about what they're doing. But everybody was focused on what the owners of Manchester United and Real Madrid and every single body was doing instead of, I think that this was just a battle between the owners and presidents versus UEFA and FIFA. And honestly, with me being, you know, somebody who has no money on that level, (laughs) I just kind of wanted to see how it played out because both these, uh, these core groups had reasons as to why they didn't want it. UEFA and FIFA want to keep their money the owners and presidents of their different clubs, they want to make more money. And JP Morgan, uh, Chase, we're going to even sponsor this European Super League so that each team could potentially have $4 billion just for being in the league. So I'm like, that's money that you can just have. It was for million, no reason. million, not billion, million. Oh, I, okay. I'm sorry. Million. Excuse <laughs> me. Clear that was, up. I'm sorry. It was going to be billions put into the league is what I meant. Not each team was going to get a billion, but uh, billions yeah. of dollars were going to get put into the league. So ultimately I, 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 I don't really, I don't have any outrage as to the creation of the super league, because I get it from an owner's perspective of why they wanted to do what they wanted to do because you don't want to have to be so reliant on the Champions League and UEFA and FIFA because you know how dirty they are and they can screw you over at any point in time. Yeah. I mean, Corey basically touched up on (laughs) the different perspectives about this. But when they announced it, they announced it on April 18th. They announced it and kind of shocked everyone. And this is kind of where everything went crazy because the fans, the coaches, the players, you know, all were in disapproval. And it was actually crazy that there was no Bayern Munich, the ones, the reigning Champions League winner, and no PSG, arguably could possibly be the next Champions League winner this year. So on April 18th, that happened. And then 19th is when the fans started to disapprove it. They caused the ruckus. And they even went to the stadium and forced games to be delayed. They didn't even allow team buses to go into the stadium. Because that's, <laughs> that's how crazy it is over there in, yeah. in Europe. That's how much they love their soccer or football, as they call it over there. And then, like you said, the UEFA president came out, threatened the participating clubs and players that they would be banned from competition and from the World Cup and Euro Cups. And World Cups, that's probably bigger sometimes to players than just winning like you know uh, club titles and champions league and then 
on April 20th, the first team, Chelsea, they were talking about potentially withdrawing. And then later on that day, Manchester City actually dropped out because of the amount of backlash. And then uh, the Super League, after that dropout, the Super League kind of announced that they're suspending their plans for the competition, kind of like revisiting the idea after all the backlash. And then (laughs) it gets crazy because the Juventus and the Manchester United presidents both stepped down because I guess from the embarrassment of how bad things turned out Mm -hmm. and then ended up that all six premier league teams dropped out of the competition and inter milan is set to withdraw from the super league as well too so as you can tell it's become an absolute shit show um the collapse of the super league literally in a span of 48 to 72 hours (laughs) um but it was a because but you have to understand a lot of people are wondering like okay why form up the league and then with all the backlash why just like tear it down because you have to understand if nobody's going to watch it or if people are going to be that adamant and that against it, then there's no point. And you're not going to yeah. make any money. You're going to lose more money creating the Super League than you would if you weren't a part of the Super League. So the whole idea, yes, was to was to create capital and revenue because Florentino Perez, who is the president of Real Madrid and who was supposed to be somewhat of like the commissioner of this European Super League, um, he came out and said that clubs are losing money. Clubs have lost tons and tons of money. Here at Real Madrid, we've lost millions and millions and millions. So my whole thing is, is that what are UEFA and FIFA doing? What are the football associations for all these different countries doing to help out these clubs that are struggling financially because of COVID-19? And what are they doing to help some of these smaller clubs that everybody was saying like, oh, it's not fair. And they're closing their doors to teams like Leicester, West Ham, and, you know, all these other small teams that have the potential to, you know, get into these European competitions right now. No one's really like looking out for them or anything like that. I'm like, well, who's looking out for the teams that are about to literally, their doors about to get shut. Like who's looking out for the clubs that are literally about to become extinct because of COVID-19 right now. And they literally are on their last legs financially. I'm like, clearly there is so much corruption and there's so much manipulation, so much politics and so much money at play in this sport, but nobody wants to talk about the core element of the problem. And that is UEFA and FIFA who are the governing bodies of the sport. And so if you're the governing body and we know about the corruption with FIFA, we know about the corruption with UEFA, we know about the issues with, you know, them putting out these different campaigns about kick out the kick out racism and say no to racism and all this other stuff. But there's countless times and times again where we hear about somebody being racially abused we hear about somebody being racially abused in all different types of countries in this sport yet neither one of these uefa or fifa do anything about it don't care about it but when the money's being threatened then they do everything in their power to stop it from happening and again i don't blame them for doing that but my whole thing is be more transparent and stop being hit hypocritical at the fact that you don't want the clubs to silence uh competition or whatever when you look at the Premier League there's only been in the past 10 or so years five winners of the Premier League and one of those that weren't in the top six was Leicester City so I mean like the competition and right now in this season alone Manchester City is 10 points clear of Manchester United they're walking away with the Premier League you look at Bayern Munich, they walk away with Bundesliga. You look at 
now all of, now Inter Milan are starting to you know be on the cusp of winning Serie A. But for years now, Juventus have dominated Serie A and dominated Italian football. PSG walks away with league on every single year. Like the gap between big clubs and little clubs is already there. So don't tell me what about these small clubs or what about this competition or whatever. The competition is already rigged to begin with because these teams already have more money. They already have the lore. They already have the facilities. They already have everything that a young up and coming star player would want to do want to be a part of you don't you mean to tell me that halan who's a part of borussia dortmund is not thinking about joining manchester city or is not thinking about joining real madrid then you're out of your mind you mean to tell me that mbappe is not thinking about going to manchester city or real madrid then you're out of your mind so i'm like these guys are already thinking about going to these big clubs anyway and these small teams are already suffering already as it is what are UEFA and FIFA doing to bridge that gap? They're not doing anything because they don't care about competition. They care about money. And so do all these different football associations. So it's hypocritical for you to point out that all these owners and presidents, it's just about money. It's just about money. But so do you. All you do is care about money too, which I mean, at the end of the day, this is a business and more fans need to wise up to this idea that it's not just competition. It's not just this club is the religion, this sport is the religion, this is life. This is a business. And these owners were allowed to come in, these presidents were allowed to come in to make money and make this a profitable business. So at the end of the day, I can't get mad at somebody that's doing their job or trying to do something that's in the best interest of their wallet. At the end of the day, it's just greed versus greed. <laughs> it is. It is. And, 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 there's nothing, and there's nothing wrong with it as long as you're transparent about it. Like, kudos to Liverpool's owner for at least owning up and to apologizing to the fans somewhat for what uh, his role was. But ultimately, I think the, the thing I'm curious about is will UEFA and FIFA actually put sanctions or put any sort of bans on these teams that threaten to be a part of this European Super League because there's rumors that they are thinking about putting out a punishment for those teams that decided that they were going to break away or decide because contracts were already signed they were already a part of the Super League so they were already involved with it it was already a done deal but I'm wondering, like, if you're going to do something, if you're going to put any sort of sanctions, if you're going to do anything like that, then come hard with it. And if you do, that's going to be interesting to see, because how will the sport survive a year without having, you know, these top teams potentially in the Europe's best leagues? So, like, I'm just curious to see, because they don't do a good job of putting out actual heavy hard-hitting punishments when teams violate the rules like when Manchester City was almost about to be uh banned from the Champions League for violating financial fair play they got a slap on the wrist like all these teams get slapped on the wrist for doing things that are not supposed to be quote-unquote okay but they just go ahead and just do it anyway because they know like oh it's just gonna be a fine we can pay that that's no big deal it's no big deal. Or is this going to be a suspension? Oh, that's no big deal. Oh, we can't buy players for what? One transfer window? No big deal. It's like, it's a joke. Well, yeah, Corey Johnson Finest, your uh, football UEFA FIFA insider over here. <laughs> no, I just, but yeah, I just is... had a lot of time to think about it. And I even put out a tweet. I've never seen a tweet of mine go crazy like this. But I put out a tweet that said, everyone has been said about the Super League, but why is no one talking about the Monopoly 
UEFA and FIFA have on the sport. If the Super League is just about greed and ruining the game, then what solutions are UEFA and FIFA making to help clubs struggling financially? Answer, nothing. Yeah. I, I mean, I, this could be an eye-opener for UEFA and FIFA that you, they, they figured out that someone would finally step up to them and threaten their, uh, you know, their money power and their power uh, trip that they're on. But it, this is going to be a story definitely to follow, even if you're not a soccer or football fan, because a lot of the backing of the Super League, they're saying, are uh, American, you know, driven. A lot of like, because I, I don't know about half, but I would say majority of the owners of these super teams are American. So it, it's definitely American driven. And um, there's a conversation. It's like, if, if they think that it's not fair with it, like you have the top six teams in the premier league. And then kind of after that, it's kind of like you're fighting basically not to get relegated and to stay in the premier league. Why not include a salary cap? Why not include, you know, have, have a salary cap to allow teams to not get every single player and allow other teams to offer more money for a top player to make the competition a little more even. Or like a transfer cap, because we see teams spending like hundreds and hundreds of, and it's just going to get more and more and more outrageous as the years go on. We see teams like breaking the transfer uh, record year after year after year, it seems like. I mean, COVID, you know, obviously put a dent in that and kind of prevented that. But how long before we see Mbappe leave for over 100 mil or Erling Haaland leave Borussia Dortmund for over 100 mil? I mean, like it's bound to happen. And when it does, I mean, like nobody's going to be surprised when it happens. It's almost like we know what the writing on the wall is, Kush, but people are kind of just like sat back and kind of just like, wow, I can't believe this happened. You know, so I'm, I, my whole situation is, is that I just want transparency in the game. If you want the sport to be a meritocracy and if you want the sport to be about earning your right to be in, you know, a European competition, cool. I'm all for that. I'm cool with that. Competition is great. But let's be realistic. On every single level of sport, there is a gap between the best and those who are just good to be professional. So I'm like, it is what it is. If you are just truly a lover of the sport, if you just love the sport, you don't care about, you know, best versus, you know, okay. Or, or you know, if, if soccer is just soccer, football is just football to you, kudos to you. But I'm going to be honest. I, I, I have struggles watching some of the lower teams face off against each other because it's like it's just not that interesting all the time or the or the game is just not that good it's the same reason why like in the nba i don't watch all the regular season games i don't watch all of i don't watch like wizards versus uh uh Timberwolves like I, I would I'm not gonna watch that I'm not gonna watch that I'm being honest I'm not gonna watch when the Cleveland Browns were terrible Browns versus Dolphins back in the day I wasn't gonna watch that so I mean you could say it's an ideological thing ideological thing between American thinking versus you know the way they think in Europe that's cool but I mean ultimately I that's the reason why I don't have a problem with them, you know, deciding to do things on their own is because isn't that what we're all like trying to build up to is to where we can be able to not have a dependency on an entire force dictating on what we can and can't do as far as with the, the team that we quote unquote own. And it's like, you're messing with somebody's money at the end of the day. So I'm like, UEFA has to make it so that more teams are getting more money for just being in the Champions League and the winners are getting their exact just rewards for winning a, a, 
think about it. You're playing in the Champions League. The elite of the elite are in the Champions League. You should be making bank every time you win the Champions League. Real Madrid won that sucker four times in a row. How much money did they make from that? So I'm like, yo, there has to be more transparency and there has to just be more, uh, there has to be more realism with the game as far as it becoming slowly but surely into another business another machine and people being able to realize that hey look there's nothing wrong with this but we just have to be able to adapt to what this is already become into because if you don't adapt you will get left behind if you don't change if you don't develop you will get left behind and already we're seeing like the sport of soccer which is the biggest sport in the world by the way not have a draw with certain people as far as the age of 16 to 24 there's a young group of people who don't care about the sport of soccer. And that's even in Europe. So I'm like, you, everybody's trying to find a way to be able to still draw in viewers and be able to still um, keep making money. So, I mean, at the end of the day, I think that the, the sport is going to have some sort of level of change, whether it be a super league or not, there is going to be change. And there's always going to be people who are not going to agree with it because it's different and because it's changing, because it's not the status quo. And the reason why I think that we're going to see that happen is because COVID has made it so that opportunity is open for there to be changed because the NBA had to open up with a bubble. They had to open, change up their playoff format. They had to do something because people are kind of just tired of the same old, same old. And also it's kind of hard to do the same old, same old because COVID is, is out here. So it's tough. Yeah. 100%. Well, you got Corey's insight. Make sure you guys are staying up with this news. Cause this is, this is big news going on in the sports world outside of the U S um, but that's pretty much going to wrap up the show for today. Appreciate y'all for listening. As always, make sure you guys are following us on social media at the underscore nosebleeds on Twitter. That's K-N-O-W-S bleeds on Instagram, the nosebleeds and on Facebook with up the nosebleeds podcast, Spotify, Apple podcasts. We're on that. If you're on Apple podcast, shoot us a five-star rating really helps us out. If you like what you heard, write us a review. If you're feeling generous, Corey, any last words? I just can't wait to see what goes down. Hopefully we get a UEFA Champions League semifinal because we still got uh, the elite of the elite teams going up against it. And PSG are in the semifinal, Manchester City in the semifinal. So, I mean, I'm curious to see what goes down and hopefully uh, we can actually have these teams progress. Hopefully we get um, something good to go down the stretch as far as the NBA and we get guys getting healthy again and we're able to get a lot of competition going forward because at the end of the day, it's all about competition, right? So uh, we, we hope that uh, everybody is enjoying uh, their day and we hope that everybody is staying safe out there and staying COVID free. Make sure you guys are doing your best to be able to avoid you know, people still remain six feet apart. Also, make sure that you get the mask up. Even if you got the, the, the vaccine, make sure you guys are still getting that mask up and still protecting yourselves because COVID is not a game, man. COVID is out here. And even that, like, you just got to make sure that you're keeping your loved ones and your family safe. Even, you know, especially with everything that's going on in the world, you know, things are just, things are just popping off and people are going crazy out there. So y'all be safe. Absolutely. And uh, we haven't talked about NFL in a while. So next episode... We're going to have a lot of NFL to talk about because it's draft time at the end of this month. So, yes, sir. We'll catch y'all later. Deuces.